I'm looking at a photo sent to me this week, a trainer for our ministry in a local church in the Visayas region of the Philippines is taking two other women in her church through the second to the last lesson in a 12-week course on evangelism and discipleship. Each of these three have been praying during those 12 weeks every day for from 4 to 12 unbelievers that they have significant relationships with. In only two weeks, these three women will begin engaging those they've prayed for in dialogues in the good news of Jesus Christ. And I know there will be fruit from those engagements. Welcome everyone, this is the Bread of Life, a radio ministry of the International Mission Church Partnership Evangelism and its associate fellowship, the Bread of Life Church in Boise, Idaho. I'm Joel Van Hoogen, I'm the Director of Church Partnership Evangelism, and I'm your Bible teacher. If you wish to learn more about our work to raise up evangelists and church planters around the world, go to traincpe.org. And to learn more about our church in Boise, go to breadoflifeboise.org. We are going to begin a consideration of the first verses of Romans chapter 2 today. And fair warning, they are verses in which Paul has been setting a trap. At the end of chapter 1, he has been describing the wretchedness of sin that falls upon a pagan nation. And those who've been reading may be agreeing with what Paul has said. Paul, I agree with you. These people deserve God's judgment. But then Paul reveals to them that they themselves, in the judgments they make, are indicting themselves of being under the same condemnation. Paul has summed up an expression of the absolute wretchedness of the society in which they live. Individuals who are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and evil-mindedness and haters of God and inventors of evil things and on and on he goes, unforgiving and unloving and unmerciful. And then he says in verse 32, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death not only do the same, but also approve or find pleasure in those who practice them. Paul is going to identify the person who thinks that he can cover his sins by moralizing. He's going to speak to that individual and he's going to say, and soon, by the way, he's going to address another person. He's going to address the person who thinks that he can cover his sins by moralizing and he's going to address another person who thinks that he can cover his sins by religiosity. And Paul is going to make an argument as he's been going along that there's no way in which man, by his moral conduct or by his religious activity, can cover his sins. There's only one way in which his sins can be covered and it's to be covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ provided for him, that righteousness that God provides through the offering of his son alone, and that's the gospel. And in order to build this case, Paul has to also demonstrate that not only have all men sinned, but that all men are justly under the wrath of God, that they're facing God's judgment. And so this is the case that Paul sets out to make at the very beginning. And in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul sets before those he's writing in a sense, the most obvious example of ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. He turns to the society that they live in. He projects his vision and their vision that he's writing to, to the behavior and the patterns of the pagan society of the Roman world. If you read the passage, and we have, it's one of the darkest passages in Scripture. It's bleak, and it's dark, and it's a terrible indictment. As Paul is writing it, he's giving this portrait of the festering sin that is 
bubbling up beneath and spewing itself out in ransom expressions within the idolatrous city of Rome itself. And Paul knows that his portrait is accurate. Paul knows that what he's saying, these individuals who are reading it, who are reading with any sensitivity whatsoever can identify exactly what Paul is telling and what Paul is saying. And, and he knows that something of the portrait that he's giving these individuals, that they will find it repugnant. Even if it's true in themselves, they'll find it repugnant. Nobody likes to be shown the awfulness of their sin. Nobody likes to be forced to look in a mirror and truly see themselves, and that's what he's doing. He knows that when they see it as well, they'll draw back from what they see in the society around them. But here's what I want to say. Be careful. Be careful when you come to the end of chapter 1 because Paul is setting a trap for us. Paul is laying out an argument where he goes to the most obvious things. And he knows that as we listen to it and reread these things that our heads are going to bob in agreement. He knows that we're going to look at this and we might even look at one another. And those who were reading it at that time and reading it together as the letter was being read to them were looking back and forth at one another and Paul knew that they were going to be saying things like, you know what Paul is saying is true. This is true. These are dark and sinful times. We're, we're surrounded by the foulness of sin throughout the world and the city in which we live. It's, it's most certain that God is going to judge the awful behavior. He can't help but drudge it. It's too bad. It's too terrible. And... They might have even listened with a solemnity about them and they may have even said things like amen, amen. But be careful to what you say amen to. Because as they're pronouncing these things and saying these things and recognizing these things, Paul is setting his trap, one that's going to expose them to their own need of the gospel. Their moral reactions of repugnance, their instinct to judge the wrong behavior and the destructive acts of evil that are surrounding them and the very capacity they have to condemn the wrong in others and also to commend the right in others as well establishes the fact that they themselves are accountable for their own actions. It doesn't exonerate them or make them righteous just because they can recognize blatant evil. Quite the opposite. It reveals that they know that there's a standard of right and wrong a standard that they themselves have not kept. In part their own standard, in part their own idea of what's appropriate and what's good that will speak against them in the day of judgment and reveal to them that they themselves are sinners. And so, as they've been referenced to Romans chapter 1 through 18, where they see that God shows that his wrath is against all ungodliness and righteousness of men, Paul is making a point. And it's that they, as they stand before that sentence and that declaration, they have to be careful. They can't act as though they're at the judgment seat judging those. They're at the bar before the judge. And when you're at the bar before the judge, you don't turn away from the judge and judge those around you. Say, well, they're, they're really terrible, wicked people. It's not appropriate. It's not right. This is the position they seem to be taking, and Paul recognizes it. I want you to see something. Look at the passage here. Look at how dramatically... Paul turns the table in his letter. Up to this point in time, he's been speaking about the sinfulness in the society around him. He's been addressing a plurality of individuals. So in Romans 1, verses 18 through 32, Paul is describing, or he's confronting, if you will, the behavior that has spread itself throughout all of the society, throughout all of the Roman society. So he's speaking against people, and a plurality of people. But in Romans 2, his finger turns from the group 
and verbally, in a sense, he singles out an individual within the group, an individual listener, and he speaks to this individual directly. This particular person who is not foreign in any one of us, who rises up within us from time to time when we identify how awful things are around us. He speaks to the moralist who finds the behavior of those around them wrong and inappropriate. They're indignant at the sins of others and can't even help themselves but cast judgment against them. And in that moment of indignation, by the way, that's quite understandable if you listen to and you read Romans 1, verses 18 through 32 carefully. Read it and see if you don't have a sense of indignation at those things, these awful things. And he turns then to the person who's feeling that indignation. In that very moment, he says, you, you are inexcusable, O oh person, O oh man, whoever you are who judge. So let's follow this case that Paul is making. He's not primarily arguing that we are all sinners. That's too easy a case for him. He's arguing that as sinners, we're all deserving of God's judgment and there's no way to cover your sins by your activities or by your behavior other than what God has provided. Here's Paul's basic argument at this point. He turns to this moralistic person. He turns to that person who rises up within us to justify ourselves because we see the wrong of everything that's being done around us and it makes us feel a little bit better even though it's so terrible what's going on in our world and Paul's argument goes something like this. You are not saved by making moral judgments of right and wrong. Furthermore, you are actually condemned by those very moral judgments that you're making. And furthermore, you're not only condemned by them because you make the judgments, but you're condemned by them because you practice the thing that you judge to be wrong. There's his argument. That's what he's saying. Let's look at these three points. Uh, by the way, as we go through this message, if at any point you think, I wish such and such was here to hear this message, I, I hope they hear this, then the message has completely gone over your head. <laughs> You've missed the whole point that Paul is making here. Paul brings it down to, oh, you man. And he's speaking to each and every one of us. And he's setting his finger upon our own hearts Something we tend to do. Something we are want to do. The impulse, the natural impulse we react to in order to justify ourselves. And he strips away this common act of self-justification, seeing how wrong everything is around us. He says, no, this making of a moral judgment of right and wrong does not save you. And here are two subpoints under this first point, that the making of a moral judgment of right and wrong does not save you. And the first one is this. Moralism is the path offered for salvation by every false religion. Moralism is the path offered by every false religion unto salvation. And the second thing is this, that the only thing that moralism truly establishes in anyone's life is that everyone knows enough of God's law to be guilty before it. The only thing that moralism establishes, knowing, being able to judge right and wrong, just is to establish that you know enough of God's law to be guilty before it. Amen, Paul. What you said was right. Our world is going down the tubes. As they say it, they step away from the world under judgment and consider themselves safe because, well, they know what the problem is. They know what the issues are. And this is the spirit of moralism. 
Moralism is the mistaken path to salvation, as we've said, offered by all human religions. It's the idea that you're saved by the works that you adhere to, or the works that you set as your standard and your goal of goodness, or by the works that you hope somehow to attain at some point in time. And maybe in your religion you have to project those works off to some distant future. Maybe you have to believe in some series of reincarnation till you get to that point, or you believe that there's some purgatory, or there's some progression in heaven before you until you reach that final point of moral perfection, but it is the means by which men seek to save themselves and seek to find their salvation. Well, here's where you begin, by the way, in this pursuit, this moralistic pursuit for your salvation. The beginning point is this. At least, at least, feel indignant about what other bad people are doing. You might struggle with this yourself, but at least have a sense of indignance at the sin that others are performing, and this will get you off on the right foot. That's the idea. I have an app on my phone. You might have it as well. It's called the Next Door Neighbor app. I don't know if you have that. If you go on the Next Door Neighbor every once in a while, you'll discover all kinds of petty crimes that are happening in the community. And just this last week, one individual was pointing out the crime and actually had the picture of the woman who was encouraging her dog to actually do its morning business in his yard. So watch out for this lady. And then, and then another person posted a sign of somebody who had built a fence too high, close to an intersection, so it was upstream. You'll have to join us in our next broadcast, and we'll consider where all this moralizing gets a person. For yourself, I suggest you get yourself to the foot of the cross and under the blood of Jesus Christ. This has been the Bread of Life, a ministry of the Bread of Life Fellowship in Boise, Idaho, and Church Partnership Evangelism. To learn more, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may the Lord bless you.